As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We're going to bring in a gentleman right now, Seth Carpenter, at least for this Friday, as Global Chief Economist at Morgan Stanley. He is extinguished. I looked at one of the beauty contests out there. He's sandwiched between Daly of San Francisco and Goolsby of Chicago. Seth, um, I, I know I'm going to get the niceties from you here, but let us begin in the Derby to replace Brainerd and a vice chairman Explain to our audience what the vice chairman actually does. So when I was there on staff, it was a really important position, worked very closely with the chair and the president of the New York Fed, who is the vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee, and really helps to steer the strategy for policy, not just for the next meeting, but sort of over the course of the next few quarters. There are schools of thought here. And one of the things that's so important is the politics of Capitol Hill. And the basic idea of Main Street, Wall Street, and might I even add the academics of Princeton or Jason Furman's Harvard, he's on the list, Goolsby, Chicago. Have we politicized the Fed in the last number of years? Is it different than when you studied at Princeton? Uh, so I'd, I'd say the world goes in lots of cycles. There are very famous uh, episodes back in the late 60s and into the 70s and the interactions between President Johnson and the Fed chair and whether it was appropriate to tighten policy uh, while the U.S. was fighting in Vietnam. So I think there have been uh, periods where there's more politicization. There are periods where there's a bit less. Uh, I think the main thing from my personal experience is that the people inside the Fed tend to be very, very focused on what their mandate is, and they try to block out the political noise to the degree humanly possible. The mandate being to uh, really bring inflation down to that 2% target, and that mandate is getting harder to wrap your head around right now because we don't understand the contours of inflation. If Jay Powell were having his Fed press conference right now, do you think that he would mention disinflation, as John was mentioning earlier, as many times as he did during that press conference? I have to say the last uh, data print does make things, you know, a little challenging to read exactly. Uh, the fundamental story of some disinflation from core goods and some hopefully coming disinflation from housing, that's generally in, in, in still intact. And you never want to fully change your worldview based on one month's worth of data. But uh, there have been some surprises, and it wasn't just one data series. The non-farm payrolls report for January was strong. Uh, the CPI report had some surprises. The retail sales report was strong. Um, all of those have to make you wonder, you know, is there a little bit, is there more resilience, underlying resilience for the U.S. economy? Now, 
we've had the view for a long time that we'd have uh, a soft landing, that we would not go into recession this year. Uh, that view was hard to hold six months ago, three months ago even. Now I think the market's coming there and the the conversation is shifting. Are we actually getting a reacceleration instead of uh, a slowdown at all? Can we get inflation back down to 2% if we don't get a recession? And this, to me, is really the underlying question of a lot of what we're discussing, because, yes, there is momentum, but this is only uh, increasing the expectations for Fed rate hikes. I mean, I my baseline view is, yes, you can have inflation get back down to target without a recession, uh, but it's a narrow path. It's pretty difficult. You need demand to be reined in so that there isn't consistently and for for continuing several quarters, uh, overall demand that exceeds the ability of the economy to produce. Now, we know the U.S. economy is still somewhat understaffed outside of tech. Um, And I think it's that residual sort of catch up and hiring that's giving some support to what's going on. Uh, But if we can get the economy to slow down fundamentally, uh, open up a bit of slack in the labor market without causing a recession, you know, that's possible. Uh, it's tricky to do, uh, but that's exactly what the Fed's trying to pull off. Seth Carpenter, I was reading on Portugal of all places in their housing crisis, and it seems like every, every, every nation has a housing crisis. Are we modeling out housing inflation correctly, or is it a squishy or changing set of data that we're going to have to adjust down the road? Housing inflation, there's a very strong sort of philosophical argument here. The way we measure housing inflation in the United States is not on home prices. The BLS's theory, if you will, is that they want to separate out uh, homes as an asset versus the flow of housing services that you get. And so that's why we have this concept of owner's equivalent rent. And when the BLS measures uh, housing inflation, they look at quotes on rents, and then they try to ascribe that obviously directly to people who are renting their homes, but they also try to ascribe some of that to people who own their homes. Um, it is what it is at this point. That's the way that well, housing inflation is measured in the U.S. I did a completely amateur apples to uh, apples to onions analysis this week, uh, Dr. Carpenter, and I looked at the rent increases from the pandemic beginning in New York City and approximated the income increases, which are tangible, but it ends up with a plug of a negative 12.5% over three or four years. I mean, does the Fed understand the angst all listeners and viewers feel about the housing economy, and then what do they do about it? So my sense is, yes, uh, the Fed does understand that there is a challenge here. What you pointed out is that real wage growth has been negative uh, because overall consumer prices have been rising faster than people's income. Now, in general, what that does is it tends to crimp people's spending behavior. And we have seen uh, over the past couple of years a notable slowdown in consumer spending growth. Uh, so how does it affect housing directly? Well, what needs to happen is a bit of a pullback for housing specifically. That's usually tied historically for with uh, increases in total employment. So a slowing in the labor market will help there. The 517,000 non-farm payroll print doesn't go in that direction. But there is something special about this cycle with COVID. We did see a surge in demand for more housing space, people wanting to live alone because they're uh, working from home, people wanting to have more space. And I think there's part of this shift that was COVID specific. The challenge, of course, is sorting out this cyclical 
part of inflation in housing, the cyclical part of demand in housing from a strong labor market, from that idiosyncratic COVID-driven part of things. I don't think anybody believes that a COVID cycle is a 100% normal business cycle. We're speaking with Seth Carpenter of Morgan Stanley, the, the economist who previously was at the Federal Reserve, who has a long and uh, storied history in this particular uh, sphere. And I'm curious about your process this week and the past couple of weeks, as we've seen this data come in hotter than expected, causing your team to increase their expectations of terminal rates, to increase how long the Fed was going to hike rates, but then also to increase the rate cuts on the back end. Can you talk about the process of how much your view shifted? I think the key right now is trying to figure out how much underlying momentum there is, and as a result, how much the Fed uh, needs to uh, raise rates. I think, as far as we can tell now, the Fed strategy remains tighten policy, have the economy slow down enough that you can be very certain that you're going to be on a glide path back to 2% over a, a couple of years. Uh, the la- last several data points have not been consistent with that outcome. And so as a result, more tightening is what's necessary uh, for the Fed strategy. I think the over- open question and the part that's very, very difficult for us to know, for markets to know generally, and for the Federal Reserve to know is just how far is enough. And part of that is how much was the 517,000 jobs a one-off like it was in July of last year, and how much of it is an indication of underlying strength? Inherently difficult. How much of the strength in January's data for retail sales, for non-farm payrolls, for inflation was because of changing seasonal adjustment that's going to come out later in the year? Because seasonal adjustment has to be zero-sum over the course of a year. Very hard to know right now. Yeah. And so that's what we've done is we've said uh, with the data available now, and then if we go to the March meeting, what data will the Fed have available? It'll be clear things are stronger than they thought, so they'll hike more then. We get to the May meeting, what information will be available to the Fed then? Another month or so worth of extra data. They have to take data, not one month changing their view, but on the sort of accumulated history of data. And by the time we get to May, it's not. It's going. It's very hard to see why they would have concluded that everything is hunky dory at that part. And so that's why we put in those extra hikes. Uh, what would lead to even more hikes? What would lead to, for example, yesterday, uh, Loretta Mester talking about 50 basis points being on the table? I think if we get clear evidence that uh, January's data were not an anomaly, but were a, a, a shift in inflection higher, if we get another 400,000 non-farm payrolls, for example, I think they have to be talking about the uh, 50 basis point hike. Seth, just real quick here, 20 seconds. Do you think that this all takes us further away from a soft landing? Uh, It's a mixed bag. Uh, I'll say no uh, for now. Uh, It's hard to say that a stronger economy results in a a weaker economy that doesn't sort of follow on its own. The tricky part is the Fed has to react if it's a substantially stronger economy. And it's always been difficult to gauge how much to tighten. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, maybe at the margin, a greater chance of a hard landing. But for now, we're, we're happy to stick with our soft landing story. Dr. Carpenter, thank you so much. Seth Carpenter, at least for now, with Morgan Stanley. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What we're going to do here is dive into the politics of the moment. There's eight ways to go always with Professor Schiller, Wendy Schiller's direct in Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy at Brown University, your textbook uh, definitive. Wendy, I want to go back to Ronald Reagan. And I can remember clear when the FDR Democrat became a Republican and changed how primaries run. There was that moment, I think it was in 19, I think, 80, 1978, whatever, 1976, where he was pushed aside because he was too conservative. And he figured out you run conservative and move to the middle along the election trail. That seems to be absolutely blown up. As the governor of South Carolina jumps into the race, as we see poll, John, help me here, the poll for Trump overnight, Quinnipiac? Uh, that was Lisa who Lisa, saw that, yeah. Yeah, the Quinnipiac poll. He's the leader, and right behind him is Ron DeSantis. Yeah, so okay. The leaderships. It seems like, Wendy, it's all blown up. How are the primaries different this year versus what we knew with Ronald Reagan? Um, well, uh, we don't have time for the entire explanation, Tom. As always, you ask a very broad question. Uh, a couple of things. Ronald Reagan understood that you could gain steam in a primary. And you're right, in 1976, he challenged an incumbent, Republican, and he didn't win the nomination. It's very typical in the Republican Party, typically, to have sort of, I lost last time, so I'm the nominee next time, up until Donald Trump. Uh, and then the Democrats changed their primary system in 1984 uh, and 88. They kept sort of changing the rules about how delegates were allocated. What we're waiting for is key. How the Republicans structure their primary season for 24 makes a big difference to Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. We've seen the Democrats move their calendar. Obviously, South Carolina is a big primary, a big primary and a big priority now for the Democrats. What will the Republicans do? And what I'm talking about is how they divide up their delegates in the beginning. Proportional representation, which kept Trump alive, actually, in the early primaries in 2016, or winner take all, which would help Trump also because Trump's now a Known commodity, he's got a, a built-in base, and if it's plurality, he'll t he'll start winning those early primaries, and that presents a challenge. If you think for Ron DeSantis, even though he's got Florida, uh, that's going to be, and we haven't heard yet what the RNC will do with how whether they're going to make any changes or keep things status quo. Wendy, a lot of people are talking about how much time, and I say a lot of people, I'm saying the two people next to me are talking about how much time it takes for the election process to be carried out. And I'm wondering how much room is there to change the gravitational force in the Republican Party away from Trump toward Ron DeSantis perhaps a bit more, but also potentially to Nikki Haley? Well, the only way it gravitationally pulls towards Ron DeSantis if it's Ron DeSantis declares and starts running. I think the mistake that he might make is to wait too long. Now, you have Florida in your back pocket. You get a lot of free publicity, but it doesn't mean you're, you're out there really connecting with primary voters. And that's what DeSantis has to do earlier than I think he's comfortable with. Uh, and then uh, Nikki Haley is going to be out there. Tim Scott from South Carolina, he's a senator. He may get in the race as well. I think the idea is the more people can present alternatives positively, not beat up on Trump, not attack Trump, but positive alternatives without all the baggage, 
they're hoping they can start to pick up some steam among uh, rank and file primary voters. On the Democratic side, we have President Biden trying to deal with both domestic and also international issues. And the latest news on that front is that he is thinking about some sort of phone call with a uh, Chinese premier, uh, with, with, uh, with Xi Jinping, the president of China. How much does this give him a bit of a difficult position to put out there, trying to both dovetail a hawkish message with a sort of a sort of an olive branch to the Chinese leadership to try to smooth over some of those relations. Yeah, I mean, I think that he's handling this in the way that he handles almost everything. He's sort of marching to his own tune. He's got a lot of foreign policy experience. And China is an extremely important, I'm not telling you three, something you don't know, a very important economic partner. And he's been moderate in his response to this because, you know, picking a fight with, with Russia and China at the same time, particularly China economically, but we just got out of that with tariffs and, you know, they stopped buying our soybeans. That cost us a lot of taxpayer dollars and subsidies back to farmers. You know, there's a lot of very negative consequences to picking a big fight with China geopolitically and economically. And he's not falling for it. He's deciding I'm going to take this slowly one day at a time and I'm not going to jeopardize what seems to be a, a renewed uh, and healthier relationship than under the Trump administration. When the underreported is the four base agreement between the Philippines and the United States, I'm going to say two weeks ago, where we're going to expand out there with investment in force, some form of military bases in Luzon and in the South China Sea. How important is that? What does that signal to the Navy and to China? Well, it's extremely important. As you know, China's been making incursions into the South China Sea for quite some time, uh, obviously rattling their saber uh, when it comes to Taiwan. Uh, just understanding that the United States will maintain its military presence and that it will be prepared uh, in some way, shape or form to block any uh, what they co consider overreach by the Chinese military and any threat to Taiwan. So I think it's a, it's, you know, it's a traditional move. We've been affiliated with the Philippines for a very long time, and some people would object to the nature of that relationship in its early days. But nonetheless, they have to show the military in the United States and the president that we are going to engage some way, shape or form uh, not to give China a free hand. When do we have this Munich security conference ongoing over in Germany? What do you expect to come out of that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the whole question uh, of the Ukraine-Russian conflict, how, many, how much weaponry we are giving to Ukraine. We've seen this in the past where we give a lot of weapons and then we lose and then the enemy gets our weapons, whether they're destroyed or not. Uh, and it's, it's a delicate balance. Uh, and then you've got Finland saying, listen, when are we getting into NATO? You want to expand NATO? We want to be part of NATO? Let us in already. So I think there's a lot of complications going on. And I think, you know, Trump took advantage of this in terms of our NATO partners and saying you have to do more. Uh, and I think uh, President Biden is doing a lot with weaponry, but you have to make sure Europe's in uh, and continues to stay in. I think that's politically very important to President Biden. And by Europe, really, we mean Germany, don't we? Wendy, thank <laughs> we <did>. you. As <laughs> always, Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. Wendy, just wonderful. something different with Helene Becker. We're not going to get a single best buy on an individual stock. We're not going to complain to her about the cost to Paris or to Lake Placid this weekend for Lisa. What we're going to do is talk to her about the unspeakable. When you're Helene Becker at Cowan, you can write about it. You can think about it. You can experience. I'll cut to the chase, Helene Becker. When I was in school a long time ago, a friend of a girlfriend's family was a Pan Am pilot and he walked on water.
There was a time where these people were gods of the airspace. Maybe it touches to the DiCaprio movie, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Things have changed. Do you have confidence in the pilot training, the pilots coming up from the regionals? Are they the same as that god from 50 years ago? Um, so those are two questions, Tom. The first part of the question is, do we have confidence in the safety and, and, and security of our air, of our air traffic um, system? Yes, we do. Um, the pilots of 50 years ago were trained during wars. We don't have that much anymore, so pilots now are more civilian trained. But yes, they all have this 1,500 hours of experience before they can work for a commercial airline. Um, unless they're in the military, they can have a few few fewer hours um but yes it's gotten increasingly difficult to be a pilot because of concerns about safety i look helene at the financial part of it of recruiting pilots describe the pilot shortage and the reports recently that the major carriers are basically stealing pilots from the lesser regional carriers yeah, they're eating their young. Um, so here's the situation. And we've been talking about this since 2014, but the pandemic yes. accelerated it. Um, you have a, a group of pilots uh, beginning in 2020, about 27,000 pilots are going to turn 65 this decade. So when you think about that, the U.S. airline industry employs about 50 7,000, 60,000 pilots. So more than half or about what, 45% of pilots were retiring and they have to be replaced. Um, And the U.S. only trains collectively about five or 6,000 pilots a year. So you were going to have a shortage anyway. Then you had the pandemic and airlines asked pilots who were intending to retire between 2020 and 2022 to consider retiring in 2020. And um, the only airline that really didn't do that was United. They made different arrangements with their with their pilots, but others retired. Yeah. And then when things started to recover, not only did you have to hire back the 10,000 that retired, but when you think about growth and you need roughly five or 6,000 pilots a year collectively for all airlines, um, you are hiring 14 or 15,000 pilots in 2022 in an environment where you're only training a third of that. So we were going to have a shortage. And I'm sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Helene, this all boils down to this question of consumer experience and how much of this is what's behind this shortage of capacity relative to demand and an experience that, I mean, I can't blame this on why a plane turns around, but a feeling that things are kind of running more by a shoestring than they used to. How much will consumers put up with, given that this is a catastrophic experience for somebody who's on that flight, but if they want to leave New Zealand and go to uh, somewhere else, they're going to get back on a plane? Right. So um, I think the incident you're talking about was the one yesterday where there was a fire at JFK and uh, an Air Air New Zealand aircraft turned around halfway into the flight or something like that. Yeah. So so here's the thing. You want to travel as a consumer. Um, You've missed it. Maybe you haven't traveled that much in the last couple of years and you want to get back and you want to get back to experiences and doing things and air is part and, and maybe air is part of your vacation. And so you try to figure out the best way to do that um 
traveling days of week that are maybe less popular, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday. They're a little less popular than the other four days of the week. Um, and then the other part of it is for the consumer, we're seeing a lot of buy-up from main cabin to premium economy um, or business class. But those fares are starting to go up a lot. So we'll really? see whether that lasts. It's just a no um, from me. I'm not flying on a Tuesday. I'm just not doing that. <laughs> if you take the week off, I'm leaving on Friday night. A hundred percent. I'm not flying on a Tuesday, it's yeah. not happening. I need to clarify something I said a little bit earlier. I read you a statement from an airline. It was actually from Korean Airlines because there were two flights that had to make a U-turn. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? <laughs> oh, it's so that dreadful. was that was the statement Painful from Korean Airlines. Let me share the statement from Air New Zealand with you. And Helene, can you help us understand this a little bit more? They said diverting to another US port would have meant the aircraft would remain on the ground for several days, impacting a number of other scheduled services and customers. How messy can that get? Yeah, so, okay, so what happens in this case is pilots um, and flight attendants have duty hour limitations. And on a flight as long as the ones we're talking about, these over-the-Pacific 15-hour flights, you, you usually fly with uh, two crews, right? You fly with your pilots who are flying the plane, and then about halfway through, once they reach their limit, you, you switch out crews, and, and there are different ways of doing that. Anyway, so, so the point here is if you divert to another aircraft, air, port, um, now your duty day is over, regardless of where you are, and now everybody has to rest for their minimum rest period, and then you have to get back you know, on the aircraft, but meanwhile the aircraft is out of place, because you can't just willy-nilly pick an airport, or you don't want to, you want to pick an airport where you have services, where you, you have um, a gate, where you have um, a ticket counter that can help the people on the aircraft get back, um, get to where they're eventually going, and then you have all the people who were intending to go back to Auckland, trapped in New York, in this case. So you have Nuts. to get the plane there anyway. Elaine, I want to finish on this. Really, Given the nature of the conversation we've just had for five minutes about this industry, American Airlines is up 29% year to date. United's up 30. Yeah. Delta's up 16 and a half. I know over the last 12 months they've had difficulties, but these stocks have rallied so hard year to date. Why? Right, yeah. So, so what Lisa and I were just talking about in terms of demand is very, very strong. Supply is limited. Um, there are OEM, not only airframe delays from Boeing and Airbus, but you have um, engine de delays. You have maintenance issues, parts that we're turning around in 48 hours are taking weeks now. So aircraft are on the ground. So you have all these supply constraints. You have a lot of demand still, and you have very strong pricing and fuel costs have come off their highs. So from a margin perspective, we're actually looking at at least a very good first half of the year. Whether it carries through all year, we'll see. But we definitely think first half is going to be very good. And, and that's propelling the stocks. Good for them and bad for us, as we all just have to suck it up, apparently. Helene, thank you, as always. Helene Becker there of Cowan. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. 
You're going to bring in Robert Dahl? I, I hope so, unless Please. you want to talk about deer again. No, I don't want to talk about deer. Bob Dahl knows deer. CIO, <laughs> Crossmark, Global Investments. Bob, we've asked this question already this morning, but given the pullback in equity markets and the rally we've had so far this year, what do you make of this most recent move? Is that something you want to take the other side of? For starters, you guys are having way too much fun over there for a Friday morning. Uh, that aside, uh, look, the Bulls have had uh, the year-to-date run. Um, I think it's going to be a year where we frustrate both the Bulls and the Bears. Now it's time for the Bulls to be frustrated. <clears throat> look, the, the narrative have, has been maybe the Fed's almost done. Inflation's coming down. I think we'll have a soft landing. I better buy some stocks. But what that ignores is we have the most inverted yield curve in 40 years. Uh, the LEIs have rolled over. Sentiment, retail sentiments move straight up to uh, equal to the peak of a year ago. Money growth is negative. The impact of what the Fed did last year is yet to be felt on the economy. I think the market's ahead of itself, and we're going to give a lot of this back. Bob Dahl, I talked to Andrew Simon of Morgan Stanley yesterday, and he was absolutely brilliant. It was a clinic on what you and I remember, which is an actually normal rate environment. And what Andrew was talking about is, was everybody understand markets are looking forward and expecting out to the future? What's the Bob Dahl future look like that gives me comfort in owning stocks? Well, I think for starters, we've got to get through this period of uh, economic weakness. I'm going to call it a mild recession. Uh, I know that's not popular. It was fourth quarter last year, but now the soft landing school has taken over. I don't know how you ignore the list I just put on the table. We've got to get through that. And during that time frame, Tom, earnings estimates are going to come down somewhere. They come down a lot already. Stocks have a hard time moving significantly higher when earnings estimates are coming down. So I think uh, some caution here makes sense. Bob, uh, Torsten Slock has been out front talking about a no landing situation, and he just put out this, giving a sense of what the market response would be to such a scenario. Basically, high inflation is a problem. The Fed is not done raising rates, which means that the trading environment from 2022 will be coming back and the 60-40 portfolio will perform poorly. Do you agree? I do, sadly. I wish I could answer differently, but uh, I think the... Uh, the inflation, inflation takes a long time to get out of the system. And to think that it just peaked and is going to come straight down. Look, if the Fed really wants 2% inflation, they have massive amounts of work in front of them. Can we get down to four, maybe into the threes? Yeah, but nowhere close to two. Bob, real quick here then, what does that mean for 10-year Treasury yields, considering that they have been creeping higher after a huge flood of cash into longer duration for the first month of the year? Yeah, I think that uh, th those rates have moved up appropriately. I couldn't believe how low they got. Uh, I suspect they'll stay where they are, maybe move a bit higher uh, before we uh, see the eyes of a, a mild recession and some more lower inflation numbers. Inflation's sticky. You guys know that. You've talked about it. So, Bob, what do you want to own? So I, I want to have a little of that 4.5% cash in my portfolio. I don't mind so much a, a nearly 4% 10-year Treasury yield. And in the stock market, I want to own a lot of the things that have not done well year to date, which are the things that did do well last year. Companies with earnings, reasonable valuations, good cash flow. The leadership has been the main stocks, companies that lose money last year, um, uh, stocks that are heavily shorted. That's not quality leadership in my view. Hey, Bob, great to have you on the, the program. Thanks for being with us. Yeah. Bob Dole there across Mark Global Investments. 
Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.